Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from The Puzzle of Archibald the Great, written by Clarence Buddington Kelland. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. A geek, a nerd, and two tough-as-nails ranch women fight rubber rustlers during World War II when rubber was worth big money. A masterpiece of screwball rom-com from Clarence Buddington Kelland the man who invented the genre, set against the background of the home front during the Second World War. Archibald the Great is filled with his trademark delirious, pixelated, battle-of-the-sexes dialogue. Archibald Cloyd was an uber-geek and as pedantic as it's possible to be. He looked like Napoleon, he strutted like Napoleon, so naturally he made himself the world's greatest expert on the little Corsican. Naturally, Hollywood hired him at thousands of dollars a week as the technical director on a movie about Napoleon. Wilson Page, Cloyd's secretary, was a nerd. He didn't fit in anywhere, and when the Air Force turned him down due to a childhood heart problem, Wilson gave up on life. He figured he didn't deserve anything better than being nursemaid to a strutting egomaniac like Archibald Cloyd. He looked down on himself and Cloyd in equal measure. But when Archibald felled for a gangster's maul, the gangster took exception to the relationship, and the pompous little geek proved too stuck up to back down even when faced with torture. Wilson Page discovered he had developed affection for the pygmy popinjay and swore to extract Cloyd from the situation. Then the movie company moved to Arizona to shoot desert scenes about Napoleon's Egyptian venture, and with Archibald now thousands of miles away from the hot-tempered gangster, Wilson Page breathed a sigh of relief. But his relief didn't last long, for in the desert Page discovered a complication he had never dreamed of when they encountered the Widow Hammer, an outsized woman with an outsized voice that could call the cattle home from a range beyond the mountains in a different state, who took a shine to Archibald because, as she said, he talks beautiful. He don't always make sense a body can understand, but the sound of it is lovely. And matters became even more complicated for Wilson Page when he fell for the irritating Miss Jemima Ward, a young woman who was used to running her own ranch, which she had inherited from her father, and looked down on soft men who earned their keep at soft jobs sitting in chairs, like secretaries to academic pedants, and looked even further down on young men such as those who were not enlisted and off fighting in defense of their country against the fascist regimes of Italy and Germany. Then just when it looked like things couldn't get more complicated, Page and Gemma discovered an old abandoned mine filled with a fortune in stolen rubber tires, one of the homeland's least obtainable and most valuable commodities. And who did it belong to? The same hot-tempered gangster who had sworn to do the dirty to Archibald the first chance he got.
And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from the puzzle of Archibald the Great. Chapter 1 Am I or am I not? demanded Mr. Archibald Cloyd, the technical director of this picture. You are, replied James Kane, with miraculous patience. In the case of Mr. Kane, any patience at any time or place was miraculous. Very well, sir, Mr. Cloyd said, drawing himself up to his full stature, which was somewhere in the neighborhood of five feet and four inches. What does that imply? Mr. Kane, who carried about with him a personal piano player to play soft music to soothe his nerves in moments of stress, or when he was thinking, or when his mind was a blank, and he pretended to be thinking, waved furiously for silence. It implies, he began with ominous softness, that you are a pea-sized puppet of the publicity department. It implies that you draw down two thousand dollars a week for tossing monkey wrenches into the machinery. It implies that you are placed on the payroll to paralyze progress. It implies that you are a worthless wad of window dressing. It implies that you are a bloody, blatant, bull-headed, bungling stand-in for Napoleon. He said all this very calmly, very quietly, speaking in measured, restrained tones. He considered that he was being reasonable and logical, that he was simply explaining the situation in clear, explicit terms, capable of being comprehended by the dullest mind. Mr. Cloyd thrust his fingers between the buttons of his vest and contrived, though he was standing still, to strut. "'I will not be spoken to in this manner,' he said in dignified anger. "'But you have been,' said Mr. Kane. "'Period.' "'Period? What do you mean by period, sir?' demanded Mr. Cloyd. "'A period,' explained Mr. Kane, "'is a punctuation mark.' It indicates the end of a statement. But I say to you, I, the world's highest authority upon the life and times of Bonaparte, that he did not do it, that there is no record of such conduct, that it is absurd, that it is the sort of thing I was retained to avert. He didn't do it, eh? It isn't in the books, my good, over-educated junk heap of second-hand facts. How do you know he didn't do it? He could have done it. It was in his character to have done it. There were twenty-four hours in his days just as there are in yours. He could have slipped on a banana peel without history recording it. He could have lost his collar button under the bureau and bawled out Josephine. He could have had a private boil on his fanny. He could have been allergic to feathers. In the secrecy of his bathtub, he might have played with his toes. Absurd! said Mr. Cloyd. You, continued Mr. Kane, are petulantly pedantic about Napoleon's public life, but what do you know about the times when he put his crown on the shelf for the night and talked over household expenses with his wife? He did, didn't he? He must have. What went on when he parked his public false front and was just a little fat man that wanted a snack before he went to bed? What did he say when he got up in the dark and kicked his big toe against the bedpost? Your books don't tell you. Trivia, said Mr. Cloyd.
This picture, said Mr. Kane, is the story of a half-pint Corsican who got kicked upstairs, who woke up one morning to find himself the headman of an empire. Its intention is to depict him as he was behind the scenes, when he was just another fellow, when he wasn't a conqueror, but just a lad in his undershirt. Get the idea? I want to show what went on when the world wasn't looking. Such tremendous figures as he, said Mr. Cloyd, are always tremendous, in public or in private. Nuts, said Mr. Kane inelegantly, and raisins. But corns, exclaimed Mr. Cloyd. Anybody who wore boots like his had to have had corns, said Mr. Kane. Anybody who rode a horse as much as he did was sure to have corns. Well, they bothered him, didn't they? What's the matter with an intimate scene when they are bothering him and he was tickled to death to get his boots off and sit in the bathroom in his nightshirt soaking his feet in hot water and paring a corn off his little toe? He'd relax, wouldn't he? He'd say, Gosh, Josie, it's swell to get those blasted boots off, wouldn't he? And then he'd talk about the new cook and how she'd gained a pound and how the palace cat had kittens, just cozy and intimate and revealing. Ridiculous, said Mr. Cloyd. I hope so, said Mr. Kane. And it never happened. But it could have happened, and it'll make folks better acquainted with Napoleon than to watch him receiving the Peruvian ambassador. So, technical expert or no technical expert, it's in. I will not be stultified. I have reputation and standing, and I will not be made to look like an ignoramus. Mr. Cloyd took two impressive steps forward. A look of sadness, of resignation, softened the angles of his face. He was Napoleon upon St. Helena, bidding farewell to mundane glory. I resign, he said. I withdraw. I find myself futile. There was a pause, hopeful on the part of Mr. Kane. A young man with very long legs and broad hunched shoulders stirred in his camp chair. Tut, tut, he said. Archibald Cloyd turned upon him regally and fixed him with imperial eye. You observed, he asked. I observed tut, tut, said the young man. One tut was for one thousand dollars. The other tut was for the second thousand dollars. Be silent, said Mr. Cloyd. Two thousand iron men in a week, said the young man. Do you suggest that I permit mercenary considerations to weigh in the scales against intellectual integrity? Yes, said the young man succinctly. Archibald Cloyd halted in mid-career. He sat down in his chair. He frowned. We will discuss this privately, he said. We will, said the young man positively. In the meantime, think no more of it. Proceed, gentlemen, as before resignations were mentioned. Mr. Keynes stared at him distastefully. I thought this was going to be my lucky day, he said. Uh-uh, grunted the long young man. In that case, said Mr. Kane, we consider the point settled. Corns are in. I must confer with the scriptwriters. Gentlemen, 
Good afternoon. Waved his hand at the fat man on the piano stool, who commenced drowsily to play Hearts and Flowers. Mr. Kane closed his eyes. He was thinking. Archibald Cloyd marched out of the room. He never walked, but always marched. The long, young man unfolded himself, looking very depressed, and followed in a gangling, loose-jointed manner. He paused in the door to wink at the piano player, who winked back drowsily. The long, young man closed the door after him softly. Mr. Cloyd stalked out to his car, a very handsome machine, and got in the rear seat. The ordinary individual riding with his personal secretary, would have sat in the seat beside him both for company's sake and as a gesture of friendliness. But not Archibald Cloyd. He sat alone in the tonneau, grim, erect, with arms folded across his chest, waiting for the long young man, whose name was Wilson Page, to arrive. Wilson Page occupied numerous positions, and Archibald Cloyd did not like him. The young man contrived to accomplish the duties of secretary, chauffeur, and hair shirt in a manner so efficient that Cloyd found himself indispensable. Yet Wilson performed all these services with an air that irked and irritated his employer regrettably. The manner and conversation of the young man savored of les majestés. It tended to flippant, and notably lacked that veneration which Archibald craved. But the great man had an uneasy feeling that things would go badly to pieces if his secretary should be abolished. Perhaps Napoleon had the same attitude toward Talleyrand. The secretary got in behind the wheel. Where to? he asked. Into the country, said Mr. Cloyd. Down along the ocean. Got to get away from it all? asked Wilson. "'Speak when you are spoken to,' said Mr. Cloyd. "'Yes, sir. Thank you, sir,' said Wilson. He turned the car and headed down the street. There was silence for a time. Then Wilson spoke. "'You almost booted one,' he said. "'Indeed.' "'Sometimes,' Wilson said. "'That vanity of yours is going to put you on a spot I can't move you off of.' Two thousand bucks a week, out the window, and all for pride. Self-respect, said Archibald, sententiously. All right, said Wilson. So you look like Napoleon. So you've got the same kind of nose and chin and forelock. So you were born that way. So because you might be his twin brother, you started reading about him and wrote novels about him and gave off lectures. Mr. Cloyd maintained a loomy silence. Suppose, said Wilson, you had been born looking like Joe Dokes. Still, Mr. Cloyd did not respond. If you were Joe Dokes, identical twin, said Wilson, there would be neither cash nor credit in it. You might be driving a grocery van. But no, you look into the mirror and Napoleon looks back at you. So it does something to your genes or your glands or your thingamabob. And here you are, dragging down 2,000 oranges a week. My appearance, said Mr. Cloyd, has nothing to do with my success. Says you, 
retorted Wilson. "'You are impertinent,' said Mr. Cloyd. "'Sometimes you will presume it too far, and I shall discharge you.' "'Then do it,' said Wilson. "'Pack your trunk for St. Helena, like today. "'If I hadn't been there to tut-tut, what would have happened?' "'You couldn't have backed down. Vanity. "'Oh, take the cash and let the credit go. "'Nor heed the bumble of a distant drum,' he misquoted. "'You attend to the bumble, but keep me around to look after the cash.' "'There were a couple of miles of silence. "'Then Mr. Cloyd stood and assumed the look of eagles. "'It is my misfortune, perhaps the misfortune of the world,' he said, that I received no military education. Why was I not appointed to West Point? Because your father never did chores for a congressman, said Wilson. My talent, my genius, might have followed the path of military glory instead of letters, said Cloyd. Today the world stands in need of a general, of a supreme genius in the art of war, I might have been he. So you're a general this evening, said Wilson. You wouldn't like it. They shoot at generals. They drop bombs on generals. Do you doubt my courage? Doubt isn't the word for it, Wilson said. A man who gets the yowling yammerings if a pussycat comes into the room isn't my pick to juggle a blitzkrieg. The grand strategy, the intricate maneuverings of vast armies... You have sold yourself a bill of goods. A mute, inglorious Hannibal. All right, go ahead. Tell me how you licked Hitler. Draw a map of how you lambasted the Japanese. I can take it. I am hungry, said Mr. Cloyd. Welcome back to Earth, observed Wilson. I know a place. In half an hour, Wilson Page drove the car into the parking lot of a roadside cafeteria and young women brought them trays of food which they affixed skillfully to the doors of the car. It was dark when they finished and started back toward Hollywood. Wilson drove slowly because anything like speed made Mr. Cloyd nervous. The young man was thinking about his employer, and with a curious sort of tolerant affection. He was thinking that Mr. Cloyd was a naive little rooster who had learned a good trick. He was not exactly human, and he certainly was not divine. He was vain, pompous, pretentious. He constantly gave an imitation of someone he would like to be, and to whom, actually, he bore no slight resemblance. Actually a timorous little man, he forced himself to be assertive and bombacious. Wilson doubted if even his vanity was real but was rather a prop upon which he was compelled to learn if he were to stay erect at all. He was small, but he was not mean. His whole life was a disguise that concealed a fear of living, a fear of people who he thought were bigger and more vigorous and more able and more dynamic than himself. Actually, he was rather shy and cringing, it is true that he had come to believe a certain large part of his publisher's advertising. Women's clubs and seekers after spurious culture had fawned upon him, 
which had inserted props under his ego. But all the while he was surprised at and frightened by his own glory. He had, Wilson told himself, only a trace of common sense, though this condition was mitigated somewhat by fragments of shrewdness. He was a balloon with no adequate defenses against puncture. He was a little man who looked like Napoleon, and his great weakness was that he could never quite believe firmly in his own self-esteem. The little insect, Wilson said to himself, has kind of gotten under my skin, like a trained mouse that I've got to protect from cats. Stop, said Mr. Cloyd suddenly. Turn off the lights. I wish to look at the ocean. That's nice of you, said Wilson. The ocean will appreciate it. He drew over to the side of the road and extinguished the lights. It was dark. The moon had not yet risen, and the ocean extended before them, gray, vast, cold, stretching serenely to infinity. There was little traffic on the highway. Perhaps seventy-five yards ahead, another large motor car had halted. It seemed to be unoccupied. Perhaps its owner was sitting down on the beach with a lady. A large van, proceeding slowly, passed them. It stopped just ahead of the parked car down the road. Instantly there was activity. The rear doors of the van opened, and four men leapt to the ground. They bore implements. In a twinkling, Jacks had been inserted under the front and rear end of the car. When it was raised, each of the four men put in place a wooden block, and the Jacks were removed. And then a man knelt beside each wheel, and in an incredibly brief time removed the tire. They rolled the tires to the van, hoisted them inside, leapt after them, and shut the doors. The whole operation had consumed something like a couple of minutes before the van was in motion again and roaring down the road. A repair crew, exclaimed Mr. Cloyd. Admirable precision, exemplary efficiency. I should like to compliment them. It could be a repair crew, said Wilson. It was a repair crew, said Mr. Cloyd severely. Stick to your story, said Wilson but let's pay no compliments. I've an idea they wouldn't appreciate flattery. Such precision, such adroitness, such skill can be based only upon training and practice. Have you, asked Wilson, heard about tires? What about tires, said Mr. Cloyd. They are, Wilson said, going to be hard to get. Indeed. Maybe these babies have discovered an easy way to get them. I do not take your meaning, Wilson explained patiently. You can't buy tires. The government won't let you. It needs the rubber itself to make war with. When your tires are worn out and you won't be able to get any more, legs are coming back into style. But what has that got to do with this repair crew? Ever see a jewelry store? asked Wilson. Yes. Know what a brick is? I do. If you saw a man throw a brick through a window of a jewelry store and reach in for a pearl necklace, what would you deduce? A theft, said Mr. Cloyd. In a nutshell, 
said Wilson. Now take me. I'm curious to know where that van is heading. The car already was in motion. It did not move far. A black limousine pulled in just ahead of them, blocking their way. Wilson applied the brakes. The limousine, having stopped, backed until its rear bumper banged the front bumper of Mr. Cloyd's car. "'What's going on?' demanded Wilson. A young man leapt from the door of the black limousine, and two other men appeared from the other side. The young man was dressed in purple slacks and a red shirt and a yellow sports coat, which were expensive. He wore rope sandals on his feet. Wilson noted that he was handsome in a black-haired sort of way, but in no way effeminate. On the contrary, he was very masculine and businesslike and terse. Walked up to the window at Wilson's left hand, and the two other men ranged along the opposite side of the car. "'Going any place?' asked the dark-complected young man. "'Here and there,' said Wilson. "'Make it here.' said the young man. Sold, answered Wilson. Smoke, asked the dark young man. Thanks, said Wilson, taking the cigarette. Mr. Cloy became imperial. He thrust fingers into his vest with the Napoleonic grandeur. What, he demanded, is the meaning of this? The young man peered at Mr. Cloyd. Reminds me of someone, he said. Yeah, Napoleon, said Wilson. Hot dog, said the young man admiringly. He peered up at Wilson. You act sensible, he said in a commandatory manner. I like good health, said Wilson. Lend me your keys, the young man said genially. Sure, answered Wilson, and handed over the ignition key. So long, said the dark young man. Your hard luck being in the wrong spot. It might be worse, Wilson said. Yeah, said the dark young man. You might have argued. He got back into the car, was rejoined by his companions, and drove away very rapidly. Of all the things, exclaimed Mr. Cloyd, why did you give him my keys? Of all the medals, said Wilson, the one I prefer least is lead. He waited five minutes patiently, then took a square key from his pocket, started the car, and drove back to Mr. Cloyd's hotel. As Mr. Cloyd alighted, Wilson said good night. Mr. Cloyd responded grumpily. Cheer up, said Wilson. We still got our digestion and five new tires. What do you want to make you happy? A rubber plantation? We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from The Puzzle of Archibald the Great. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.